Good morning to everyone. In case you didn't realize, it is the first Sunday of the month. And as is our custom here at Grace Community Church, uh, that means three things. One, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Two, uh, we partake of a, of a meal later on in the Williams Hall. And three, we study a psalm together. One of those three things isn't going to happen today. Uh, we are not going to study a psalm together. Uh, why, you ask? The answer is, is very simple. I'm on a little bit of a schedule when it comes to 1 Corinthians in terms of what I want to get done this month, next month. And uh, some of you are aware that two Sundays ago, I missed for reasons, circumstances beyond my control. So it set me back a week. So I want to make up for it and continue with our study in 1 Corinthians today. And Lord willing, first Sunday in November, we'll get back to the Psalms, Psalm 21, I believe. If that's a problem for you, you can take it up with uh, Randy Engstrom later. He'd be happy to talk to you and... Uh, answer any objections or whatever else you might have to say on the subject, but uh, we're returning today to 1 Corinthians. Where are we in our study? Uh, very simple. If you have your Bibles open, uh, turn to chapter 1 and look with me at verse 10. Do you see it? Chapter 1, verse 10. Put a finger there and then flip over a couple of pages, if you can, to chapter 4, uh, verse 21, all right, another finger there. Have you got it? That's a section. That's a unit. And we are in the midst of studying this section in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It is a very important section in which he is dealing with an issue that plagues the church. Look with me at verse 10 and look very carefully at what he says there. We have a command. I appeal to you. And so I am urging you. I am pleading with you, brothers. That's a sense of urgency. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is making an appeal to his authority. That. Notice the word that three times. Number one. That all of you agree. And number two, that there be no divisions among you, but number three, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That command governs the entire section. All right. Chapter one, verse 10 through to chapter four, verse 21. What's it about? What is Paul doing? He is unpacking that command. It is a command that he gives. Why? Because there is a problem. And he describes the problem, chapter 1, verses 11 through to 16. He goes back and he makes reference to it again. The problem, we can sum it up as follows. As follows. The, the, the believers in the church at Corinth have adopted the world's thinking. They are viewing things from the world's perspective. And there is this craving. I don't think that is too strong of a word, given what Paul says here. There is this craving for power. 
for influence, for popularity, for notoriety, for status. And what the believers in the church at Corinth are doing is this. They are using their spiritual gifts. They are using their wisdom. They are using their ministries. And they're even using their leaders in order to satisfy their craving for status, influence, position. And what's the result? The church is coming apart at the seams. The church is about to self-destruct. They're about to erupt into civil war. They are quarreling. This is the problem. That's why he gives the command. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then starting in verse 17, right through to the end of the section, chapter 4, verse 21, he gives his remedy. That which is necessary for resolving the problem and obeying the command. And he comes at it. He gives his remedy from six different angles. And there they are on the screen behind me. This is all he does. He walks them through these six points. How God saves. That's number one. Whom God saves. Number two. Number three, how I preach. Number four, what I preach. Number five, how we minister. Number six, why we minister. And then he wraps it all up with a conclusion. How many have we considered to date? You're right. The first four. We have covered the first four. And so today we're going to look at number five, how we minister. Next Sunday, why we minister, which will take us to chapter four, verse five. And then the conclusion, verses six through 21. Daryl, you can take that slide away. There you have it. The six angles from which Paul is addressing this problem, plaguing the church at Corinth. And our business today is his fifth angle or his fifth argument. And so follow along as I read in the third chapter, verses one through 15. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says... I follow Paul and another. I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, 
and someone else is building upon it, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There's the fifth angle from which he addresses this problem in the church at Corinth. When you take these 15 verses and you just knock on them a little bit, give them a little tap, stare at them long enough, they just sort of naturally break into three sizable chunks, three sizable sections. Let me give them to you now. If you're using the sermon notes in the church worship guide, then you can fill in these three blanks and just relax. Here is the first section. It's verses one and two. The problem, all right? The problem. Second section, verses three and four, the proof or the evidence for the problem, the proof. So you have the problem, you have the proof. And then thirdly, you have verses five through 15, the remedy. As I was coming up with those headings, I think it was Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, the problem, the proof, the remedy. The problem, the proof, the remedy. Oh, it would be nice to have a third word that started with the letter P. The problem, the proof, the remedy. And nothing, nothing would come to me. So I called Allison, who was in the other room. Allie, the problem, the proof, what? P word. And she yells back, the pill. (laughs) So you can write pill if you want. I assume that's what she meant, and she wasn't calling me a pill. But... If you want to write pill in that blank, that works for you. You like the feel of that, that's good. I'm sticking with with remedy. The problem, the proof, the remedy. So here we have the first section then, the problem. To set the stage for the problem, back into the previous chapter, chapter 2, glance with me at verse 6, yet among the mature. You hear that phrase? The mature, the mature, still in chapter two, take a peek at verse 15, opening expression, the spiritual person. So you have the mature and you have the spiritual. Who are these people? They are not, I will repeat it. They are not a special class of Christians. They are Christians, all Christians are mature. All Christians are spiritual. Why? Because all Christians are in whom? Christ. And because all Christians are in Christ, they are part of what? The new creation. And because all Christians are part of the new creation, they belong to what? The age to come. They no longer belong to the present age. And so belonging to the age to come, Belonging to the new creation, being implanted into Christ, means that I have reached 
what can only be described as maturity or spirituality. That is our position in Christ. Are we clear on that? Big word, not big as in number of letters, big in significance at the outset of chapter 3, verse 1. What is it? But. But. It's a huge, huge word. However, hang on a minute. Yes, you are mature. Yes, you are spiritual because you are in Christ, part of the new creation, part of the age to come. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. I can't speak to you according to who you are in Christ Jesus. But as people of the flesh, as opposed to those who are spiritual, as infants, as opposed to those who are mature. What's he saying? Simply this. Look, you are spiritual, but you aren't acting like it. You are mature, but you aren't acting like it. You are in Christ. You get the drift. But you are not acting like it. You're part of the new creation, part of the age to come, but you most certainly are not behaving like it. And because you are not behaving in accordance with who you are in Christ, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, as as mature people, but I had to address you as people of the flesh As infants in Christ. What does he mean by that? He unpacks it in the second verse. I fed you with milk. Not solid food. Not meat. For you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. Into the third verse. For you are still of the flesh. Now steady on here and be very careful. When Paul in the second verse differentiates between milk and meat. Milk and solid food. He is not differentiating in terms of levels of doctrine. He is not saying, look, there are simple doctrines, the ABCs, and then there's the XYZ, right? The really complicated, complex doctrines. And when I was with you, well, all I could give you were the simple, the simple stuff. And even now, all I can give you is keep going over the simple stuff. I can't give you any of the heady stuff. I can't give you any really, the really complex stuff. All that speculative theology that I love to get in because you're not ready for it. No, Paul is not differentiating in terms of levels of doctrine. He is differentiating in terms of levels of application. Levels of application. When he was with them, he preached Christ crucified. When he was with them, he declared the full testimony of God. When he was with them, he imparted the revelation of God. When he was with them, he gave them the goods, so to speak. The truth, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. The issue is not content. The issue is what? Application. That they know the truth. They possess the truth. The wisdom has been imparted, but they are not living in accordance with what they know. That's the problem. They are behaving as those who are of the flesh. They are behaving as the immature, as children, as infants, because they are not 
putting into practice precisely what they know. And what is it they know far eclipsing all else? It is simply this, in the words of the Apostle Paul himself, when I was with you, I desire to know nothing but Christ crucified. Oh, they know it intellectually, but they are not living it out. They have taken but milk, and all they are capable of digesting is milk. They are not yet ready for the meat of the gospel and what it means to live in accordance with the gospel, the gospel being what? Christ crucified. That's the problem. What's the proof? They might object. Hang on a second, Paul. I disagree. And Paul's response, you dare not disagree, verse 3, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He is not referring to their position. Their position in Christ, they are mature and they are spiritual. He is addressing their behavior. They're not acting like it. And how do we know you're not acting like it? I know you're not acting like it. Everybody knows you're not acting like it because there's jealousy and strife among you. And so you are not, you're, our only conclusion is what? Is that you're of the flesh and you're behaving in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos and all these quarrels and divisions and everything else arise among you, are you not being merely human? You're following his train of thought. You have a problem, and here is the proof. And his proof is rock solid. We might think to ourselves, jealousy, strife, what's the big deal? No need to turn there. Just, just give an ear. Listen closely, intently to what Paul writes in his epistle to the Galatians. Chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you. As the Apostle Paul, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When it comes to the works of the flesh and what we will identify as stuff that's really, really bad, we get it when Paul speaks of idolatry, sorcery, and immorality. But what is downright startling is this. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul places jealousy and strife on the same level as idolatry, sorcery, and immorality. And his point is what? That those who do such things, those who practice such things, check it, be careful. Paul is not saying that someone who has indulged in these things, subsequently repented, be born, born again, living the life of faith, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not what he says. Those who do such things, those who practice such things, those who live in such things, 
for those for whom this is the, their course of life, their way of life, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so you take that, you infuse it here in his epistle to the Corinthians and realize how this must have hit them between the eyes. That I know, I know, yes, you are spiritual, you are mature, but let's face it, you are acting like those who are of the flesh, those who are infants. Here's the proof. Jealousy and strife are rampant among you. And so I, I can't speak to you as spiritual people. I can't give you meat. I need to keep giving you milk. Back to the basics of Christ crucified and its application. And you're not ready for the full significance of it because you are still living in a manner that is completely contrary, dare I say, antithetical to who you are in Christ Jesus. That's the proof. And then what does he do thirdly? Let's, let's go with Alice. He gives a pill. He gives a pill. The pill. Verses 5 through 15. Uh, pills. They're obnoxious little things, aren't they? I, 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 I recall as a, as a little boy, my mom, what she would do whenever I had to take a pill for whatever reason. Um, she would get two spoons and she would put the pill between the two spoons and she would, she would crush it. And then she'd take one of the spoons, dip it in the raspberry jam or whatever, and slap it on the other spoon, and in it would go, and down it would go. I'm not going to crush it or put jam on it this morning. You're going to take this pill. We're going to take this pill whole, and we're going to swallow it, all right? The remedy. And the remedy is from verse 5 all the way through to verse 15. The first thing I want you to notice is this. Paul begins with a couple of rhetorical questions which reveal his main point, what he really wants them to grasp. Tell me, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? These are rhetorical questions because the expected answer and the one he is going to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt is what? They are, they are nothing. They are nothing. His point is what then? He wants the church at Corinth to learn from their example. They too are spiritual. They too are mature. But they are living in a manner that reflects who they are in Christ. Corinthian believers aren't. And so he is appealing to their example. Look, you've brought us into this mess. You're making us part of the problem and the part of why all these divisions are arising. But let me remind you now of exactly who we are. We are nothing. And we understand ourselves to be nothing. And we seek to live in a manner that is consistent with what it means to be mature and spiritual in Christ. We live in a manner that seeks to be consistent with what it means to know nothing, know nothing but Christ crucified. And I want you to learn from us. And there are seven lessons that jump out from these verses that I pray we will take to heart this day. As a matter of fact, I want to put them in the context of Grace Community Church. And I want to word each of them as directly applying to us of relevance to us. And pray the Spirit of God will do His work in the hearts and minds of each one of us. So here they are, seven lessons we ought to learn from Apollos and Paul that he wants them to apply and that by extension apply to us. Number one, as members of Grace Community Church, I'm speaking not only to Christians, I'm thinking specifically of those of us who are members of this church. As members of Grace Community Church, lesson one, 
We are servants. We are servants through whom God works as he pleases. It's right there in the fifth verse. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom, not because of whom. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Folks, we are but servants. The Lord Jesus himself made it clear in Luke 17, verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's who we are. We are unworthy servants, and we have only done what was our duty. You think, for example, uh, this morning at some point when you got up, went into the kitchen, I don't know, turned on the tap, and the water emerged from the tap. The tap, the piping in your house, neither is the source of that water. It's merely the instrument through which the water gets to you. Maybe you ate out yesterday for supper, lunch, or maybe Friday night, and your waiter, your waitress, good job, bad job, immaterial, but um, that individual, that waiter, uh, was not the source of your food. He was simply the instrument by which it arrived at your table. That is Paul's point here. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Through whom instrumentality you believed as the Lord assigned to each. We are not the Holy Spirit. We are not the power of God. Quite frankly, we are not the cause of anything. We are not the cause of anything. We are merely the instruments, servants, through whom the Lord works. Here's a second lesson emerging from the text. As members of GCC, we fulfill different roles. Start of verse 6. I, that's Paul, planted. And what did Apollos do? He watered. In other words, when you think in terms of the church at Corinth and its brief history, well, my ministry was groundbreaking, says Paul. My ministry, I was there at the beginning. My ministry was to proclaim Christ, where Christ had not yet been proclaimed. Men and women, boys and girls were converted. I was gone. Apollos came later. He built on what I had done, and he nourished, and he watered, and he cultivated two very, very different roles. It reminds us that we possess different roles, different gifts, different callings, Different responsibilities. The church, grace, community, church, consists of diverse members with diverse functions. Just as the members of a physical body, you're all aware of this, just as the members of a physical body perform different functions, so too the members of Christ's body perform different functions. We celebrate what? Diversity in unity. The third lesson is this. As members of Grace Community Church, 
We are completely dependent on God to give the growth. Completely dependent upon God to give the growth. And so start with me again in the sixth verse. I planted, Apollos watered. There's that word again, but it is so important in Scripture. But God gave the growth. So here's the obvious conclusion, implication. Neither he who plants, Paul in this case, nor he who waters, Apollos in this case, is anything but only God who gives the growth. Growth is not the result of the instrument. Growth is the result of the source. Growth is not the result of using spiritual duties. Growth is not the result, please hear this, of reading the right book, listening to the right preacher, or attending the right seminar. Growth is always God-given. These might very well be appointed means through which God delights and chooses to work. But these means and instruments accomplish absolutely nothing in and of themselves. That's Paul's point there in the latter half of verse 6 into verse 7, that only God gives the growth. As I was meditating on this verse much of this week, the question that kept coming to my mind was this. What does this growth look like in terms of a local church? That's a very good question, isn't it? God-given growth. What will it look like? What will be its identifiable features? Is it a church, God-given growth? Is it a church with lots of people crammed into a room? Is that God-given growth? It might be, but not necessarily. Is it a church with exciting and flourishing and engaging activities and ministries? Is it a church with lots of youth, vitality, life? Is it a church with influence in the community? Is it a church that speaks into the corridors of power? Is it a church that is culturally and politically engaged? Is it a church that's busy? Is it a church with a big budget and a big building? You want to know something? This is what really disturbs me. The world would say yes to each and every one of those questions. And yet in the final analysis, none of them have anything to do with God-given growth. What does growth really look like? You turn back with me to chapter 2. I already referenced it, but let's keep it in the forefront of our minds. Back with me to chapter 2, verse 2. Paul states, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As a Christian, I believe that Christ died for me to make atonement for my sins. As a Christian, I believe That because I am one with Christ by the Holy Spirit, I have been crucified with Christ. As a Christian, daily I see myself hanging on the cross. All that I was in Adam, my love of self, 
crucified. And as a Christian daily, I seek to live accordingly. The degree to which I am living accordingly indicates the degree of my growth. That is growth and nothing else. And we dare not confuse it with anything else. Growth is orienting my life, my entire life around the gospel of Christ crucified. It is nailing, nailing my dreams, my troubles, my needs, my talents, my money, my time, my life to the cross. And realizing that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's not where the believers are at in the church at Corinth. And that's why Paul says what? I could not address you as spiritual. Still giving you milk. You're not ready for the meat in terms of levels of application because you're not really there yet. That's his point. The proof that you're not there yet, oh, you're, all this jealousy and strife and nitpicking and chaos and everything else that's going on. Oh, please understand. Please understand. We are completely dependent upon God to give the growth and be clear in your understanding as to what this growth looks like and does not necessarily look like. Again, here it is in a nutshell. It is a life completely, entirely oriented around Christ crucified, the cross. And it is bringing everything and nailing it to the cross. And our great concern becomes what? That of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Not my will, but thine be done. That is God-given growth. Here's the fourth lesson he wants them to get, and us to get by extension. As members of Grace Community Church, we are one because we belong to God. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters, there you have it, not making it up, obviously, it's right there in the text, are one. To be united to Christ is to be united to one another. And being one in Christ, we share one purpose, to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. We declare one message, Christ crucified, and we derive our strength from one source, Christ himself. Here's the fifth lesson. As members of Grace Community Church, we will receive our wages according to our labor. Follow along from the outset of verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each, whether you plant or water, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. We each gifted differently. Each will what? will receive his wages according to his labor. I'll break that down a little bit in verses that are coming. For now, let me just draw out two obvious implications. They are these. Number one, because each of us will receive our wages according to our labor from our master whom we serve, I am not appointed to judge my brother's service. My brother has a master to whom he will give account. And implication number two, I have enough to worry about because I'm going to give an account for my own service 
And it begs a very obvious and somewhat, dare I say, disturbing question, am I serving faithfully? That's the fifth lesson. Sixth lesson is this. As members of Grace Community Church, we are God's fellow workers in his building. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are, speaking to the church at Corinth, God's field, God's building. In a few verses, he's going to add another description, God's temple, God's dwelling place on earth by the Holy Spirit. That's who you are, God's field, God's building, God's temple. And we, what are we? We are God's fellow workers in this building. And what does that mean for the church? A field, a building, a temple. What does it mean for GCC? The implications are many. Perhaps the most obvious is this. It means that GCC, Grace Community Church, is not a Sunday morning event. If you think it is, you are sorely mistaken. You've missed the boat completely. Grace Community Church, the local church, is not a Sunday morning event. It is the building of God. It is the very temple of God. It is an alternative society in which Christ rules by his word and spirit. And we are fellow workers in this building. We are not tasked with doing everything. We are not tasked with doing the same thing. We are tasked to do what God has called us and equipped us to do. Here's the seventh lesson and the last lesson. As members of Grace Community Church, we build upon Christ, the one foundation. Let me read again verses 10 through 15. Follow Paul's train of thinking, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has, each one of us has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Personally, I think a lot of sincere believers have made an absolute mess of these verses over the centuries. Let me simply explain them. I think they are very simple, very straightforward. I think the place to begin is with what? There's a foundation. We can all agree on that, right? Paul has said, I've laid it. I've laid a foundation. Well, what is this foundation, Paul? He tells in verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other. There's only one foundation, that which is laid. Who? Who? It's Jesus Christ. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies concerning the stone and the stone that the builders rejected and that God himself has laid this stone and Paul has laid this stone is the proclamation of Christ crucified. It is the gospel that he proclaims. You got it? There's the foundation. Second thing he wants us to get is what? Is that we are building on that foundation. Paul was involved in laying the foundation, uh, but others now are building on it. He says in verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation, that's us. 
as Christians, members of a local church, the foundation is laid as the gospel of Christ crucified. And now we are seeking to build on that foundation and build up this field, this building, this temple. Third thing he wants us to get is what? That on some day, verse 13, the day appointed, a day of judgment, uh, our work, what we have built on this foundation, it's all going to be made evident. It will all be disclosed. It's going to be revealed that is tested by fire, an illuminating fire and a testing fire. Uh, the fire right at the end of verse 13 will test what sort of work each one has done. Are you with me? And then keep building right on top of that. There will be reward and there will be loss. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation, we know what the foundation is. We know we're serving in the context of a local church. We are to build on that foundation. It's going to be tested. If anyone's work actually survives that day of scrutiny, when it is disclosed, he'll get a reward. Conversely, verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Obviously, it has nothing to do with salvation, though he himself will be saved. We're not talking about one's eternal destiny here, but only as through fire. It does beg a couple of questions. The first question is this. What, what, what is this building that he's talking about? Okay, we get, I get the foundation, the building, the local church, and I get this idea that I'm involved in this building. I'm laboring. I'm working. And he gives this warning then in verse 12 about gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Don't get bogged down in the significance of those words. I don't think there's any significance in the individuality of those words. He's simply making a point. We build and we use things and we're building on this foundation. The point is what? The day has come when it, will be, when it comes when it will be tested. And our chief concern should be what in light of verse 12? That as we build on this one singular foundation, are we using good materials which are consistent with the foundation or are we using shoddy materials? That's the question. Are we building upon the gospel of Christ crucified? Or have we replaced a theology of the cross with something else? That's the question. Are we building with personal preferences? God help us if we are. Are we building with personal agendas, personal needs? Are we building with the cult of personality? Are we building with personal consumerism? I dare say much of American evangelicalism is personal consumerism. Are we building with political activism? Are we building with rugged individualism? Think on this one. Are we building with American exceptionalism? Lots of churches are. Are we building with psychological wholeness? Are we building with self-promotion? What materials are we using? I dare say the only material worthy of the foundation is the foundation himself. It is the gospel of Christ crucified. It is the foundation itself that dictates the means. It leads to another obvious question. Well, what is this reward? I really want to know. What is this reward? Paul doesn't unpack it in detail, does he? He may give us a hint. Look over in chapter 4 just for a second. I'm not going to belabor this. Just into chapter 4. Look at the fifth verse. There may be a hint here. I think there is. He writes, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness 
and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Is that the reward? Is the reward to hear on that day God's commendation? Well done, good and faithful servant. Not only to hear the commendation, but experience the resulting joy. I think Paul alludes to this elsewhere, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He writes, what is our hope? What is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? He's writing to the church of Thessalonica. Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. And so I think what Paul's saying is this. On that judgment day, again, please understand, friend, this has nothing to do with the eternal destiny of the soul. This is an in-house thing. The building, believers, those who are servants, uh, seeking to build on a foundation. Paul's, Paul's expectation seems to be what? That on that day, he is going to experience a measure of joy a crown of exaltation. When and why? Because he's going to turn around, and who's he going to see there? The Thessalonian believer. And his work is going to be tested as with fire, and it will be proven what? That his work remains because he built on the foundation that he himself laid, the gospel of Christ crucified. And he is going to hear that good commendation from God himself and experience the corresponding joy. Well, if that's the reward, and I'm inclined to think it is, then what's the loss? Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, is it simply the sorrow of seeing one's life work evaporate before their very eyes? That's the loss. The sorrow of seeing one's ministry, one's work, one's labor completely evaporate. Why? Because they were using shoddy materials. Why? Because they had lost sight of the foundation. And having lost sight of the foundation, they built with that which will not last through God's scrutiny, revelation by fire. And the result will be a sorrow at the loss of a life's work. It begs, again, I love obvious questions. It begs an obvious question. Are we building on the foundation? John Calvin wrote, our salvation is in Christ. If we seek redemption, it's found in his passion. If we seek forgiveness, it's found in his condemnation. If we seek purification, it is found in his blood. If we seek reconciliation, it is found in his suffering. If we seek newness of life, it is found in his resurrection. Let us drink our fill from this fountain. This and this alone is the foundation upon which we build. Our Heavenly Father, may it be so is our heartfelt prayer this day. For Grace Community Church, may it be so that our eyes might be fixed daily 
upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was lifted up upon Calvary's cross, the one who died to make atonement for sin, the one who died to reconcile sinners to you, and the one in whom and through whom we have a blessed hope, the hope of eternal life. May this be our daily sustenance. May it be the object of our heart's delight and desire. And we pray, our Father, that you would help us, that it might be indeed the foundation that we continually build upon. And to the matchless glory and praise of the Lord Jesus, we do ask it. Amen.